You're listening to the Sidious Playground Podcast, and I'm Rick Enlow, and I'm here with Dave Hillis, and it's holiday time, so happy holidays. Happy holidays, Rick. We are, uh, of course, um, always thinking on this podcast about the city as a place uh, of play instead of a place of... Um, you know, rivalry and a mm-hmm. place of violence, you know, like a lot of people frame it as uh, more of a battleground than a playground. But um, based on the book that you that you wrote, we, we have been talking uh, for a couple of years now about the mm-hmm. city as a playground. And uh, yet at the same time, we're willing to admit that there's some rough edges in the city. You know, that uh, in fact, even when we record this podcast from time to time, you'll hear a siren in the background mm-hmm. so that we know it's uh, we're not doing this in some sort of artificial setting, but right in the city. And uh, the untold Christmas story is our topic today, and it really does speak to uh, the fact that, uh, you know, we can sort of sanitize the Christmas story. And and there's our siren. There it is, yeah. (laughs) But there are some really rough um, elements in, you know, the biblical uh, historical Christmas story, and we can learn a lot uh, Mm -hmm. and then make application to that uh, about what we do in in the work of uh, leadership foundations around the world. So uh, I think it's going to be a really great uh, opportunity to have that conversation. And uh, you lead it, and I'll be the curious one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think you set it up, you know, well, Rick. And I would back up and say that the power of this metaphor, you know, that I oftentimes talk about where Joseph Conrad said, you know, if you want to change the world, change the metaphor. And so Leadership Foundation's response to that kind of challenge was, well, if our work is in the city, Mm-hmm. You know, what has been the prevailing metaphor uh, that people have used, and it was battleground. Right. And if we want to change the world, then let's change that metaphor, and thus we came up with playground. That idea, though, um, has what I would describe as a vulnerability, um, because the truth is uh, the Aleppos of this world, uh, the Detroits of this world, the uh, Tacomas of this world mm-hmm. are not playgrounds. Uh, at least as we, you know, currently experience them. So the playground is really a vision. And so what that that metaphor then has to take into account are some of the sharp edges that every playground has. Yeah. And I think if you go down the street and, you know, you go to your local playground, it doesn't take you long to go, oh, so that's where the hypodermic needles go. Mm-hmm. And that's where the, you know, broken beer uh, bottle does. And so... In many ways, we want to hold up this idea of a city as a playground as this powerful metaphor, but not allow it to gloss over uh, some of these, what we would describe as sharp edges, um, or we would become unrealistic. So I think in particular, I love the, the Christmas story in the scripture, uh, at least the way it's told in, in Matthew and Luke, as really a good example of holding up before us this great hope right, the idea that God actually became human on behalf of, uh, you know, our salvation and goodness. But the story uh, is told in such a way that there's no getting around the really kind of overwhelming drama of the birth and some of the variables that were taking place. And I think we lose a big part of the Christmas story. Oftentimes what I say is the untold Christmas story. Mm -hmm. If we run straight to the Hallmark version, uh, if we run straight to Charles Dickens, I mean, all these things that have popularized it. And I, like many people, you know, enjoy Christmas in those ways. But I think uh, recovery of the biblical story of the way Christmas came to us 
is, is important, particularly in the days that we're living in, and particularly for those of us that are trying to see our city as a playground with all of its sharp edges. Yeah, I think that's true. I remember Gordon Fee, when he was writing a commentary on New Testament studies that I had a chance to take, he was saying that if uh, you were going to write the story, you certainly wouldn't write it this way. <laughs> but it speaks to the legitimacy of, of the facts and that the, it was, uh, you know, it was not, um, you know, we'd call sanitized or smooth or, or mm -hmm. you know, or, or even, mm -hmm. you know, the way we'd say in our own families, well, that's not... Let's not tell our stories, you know, <laughs> that that's, way. That's yeah, right. but that's what's so beautiful about it. And yeah. I, you know, in fact, uh, just came. I took our, our grandkids to uh, a living nativity, oh. and it was the city of Bethlehem. You know, and you'd walk through, and all these people, and the people. It was at a local church, and they, they did a really great job. I mean, the people were, you know, um, just folks from the you know congregation, and mm -hmm. they were dressed up, and they they stayed in character. You know, because I would kind of give them a bad time. <laughs> but we got around to. Uh, where uh, suddenly they had Herod sitting up in this sort of, you know, palace area, you know, when he was up there. <laughs> and I started yelling at him, you know, and uh, just <laughs> just trying to be funny and saying, like, you were paranoid, you know, you're, you know, whatever. And uh, I, th I think that even in that depiction, it was uncomfortable for them mm -hmm. <laughs> to deal with it, you know, like mm -hmm. a, a visiting heckler. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because they wanted it to, you know, just, hey, man. Just yeah. let it go smoothly and let, let the, the shepherds and the Christ child, you know, fe be featured. You know, so I think Charlie it's Brown. Yeah. 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 yeah no, I, I think that's right. And, you know, and we all, you know, we all have that dynamic in all of us. And I think that, again, one of the characteristics of the gospel is that, you know, and I think so many have said it this way, but, you know, it makes the comfortable uncomfortable and the uncomfortable comfortable. Yeah. And. I think that that dynamic um, is very much at play in this this you know Christmas story. There is a part of it that's just so wonderfully overwhelmingly good uh, mm -hmm. and comfortable, but there are parts of it that uh, that makes one uncomfortable. And I think anybody that's doing work in the city, um, you recognize that if this story doesn't in some way touch on these uncomfortable parts, it's probably not. A very yeah. honest story, right, right. And so I, I love this part of the, of the, the truth of the Gospels is that it tells it in all of its raw and, you know, difficult and uh, overwhelming ways. Yeah, and I think uh, to start with, I've uh, read that, um, you know, it, some people would like to eliminate the genealogies from the stories <laughs> because I don't know, you know, I have a friend who recently said, Hey, I went and did the DNA test, you know? And I said, Oh really? You know, and they told me all how they did it. And they, they, their last name was, uh, you know, uh, had a kind of a Latino type name. And so they assumed that that was, that was part of their background, nothing to do with it. <laughs> you know, and they found out they have a whole different heritage than they right. thought of. And right. That's and that's a kind of a the the way that these gospels start out. They they sort of uh, are are a shocking kind of DNA revelation. Yeah, I mean, so maybe to dive into it, and we'll talk about this Christmas story around maybe four what I would describe as scenarios that I think get to some of the 21st century reality of of, of cities and how they can help us see. The city is playground in clear and better ways, but to the gene <clears throat> the genealogies, you know, there's the the two gospels, uh, Luke and Matthew, that make use of it, 
And of course, commentators have debated about this a lot because it's two very different, um, you know, genealogies. Mm -hmm. You know, Luke starts his with, you know, essentially, you know, kind of Adam and Eve itself and kind of tells the whole generation of, of, you know, how humankind has come to be. And of course, the reason that he was doing that was that you know his audience was going to be ultimately Gentiles, and so right. they needed to tell that full human story. But in the case of Matthew, uh, it starts, of course, with Abraham, and you know immediately that that's a key that this is a decidedly Jewish audience. Right. And so it's going to be what every Jewish family tree had ever been before, and that is, is how do you demonstrate the purity of your line? And it takes on even a little bit more of a drama to think, okay, you know, this would probably be the one place, if this is the Son of God, that this line has to be, I mean, like, extra clear. You've got to have, like, the rubber gloves on, you know, everything. So they begin to trot this out, and uh, here are these, you know, 42 men that will be uh, named. And all of a sudden, um, what happens is, you know, five women show up. And Rick, immediately, there's got to be all kinds of things going off. I mean, the first and the most basic is that what is a woman doing in a family tree? Right. I mean, if, if you were trying to demonstrate this, the one thing you wouldn't do uh, is, is name women. This is, a, this is a men's club, to be sure. But you take the next step down. It's not just five women. It's five particular women. Mm-hmm. And as you drill down into each one of these, um, it tells a kind of story that is, is really breathtaking. And we can talk about this in a number of levels, but the one that stands out immediately is that these are non-Jewish women. Hmm. Um, and you don't expect that. Right. Uh, or I should say other than Mary, the four women, you, you, you don't expect that. Um, if, if a woman's gonna get into the family tree, I mean, at least you've gotta be Jewish. But the second thing is that these are not what you would describe as morally upstanding women. I mean, mm-hmm. this is Rahab, uh, you know, the, the uh, kind of famous prostitute. Um, it's uh, Tamar who, um, you know, she was a hustler in the sense that she actually ended up betting her father-in-law in order to continue the family line. Uh, you've got someone like Bathsheba whose sin appears to be um, of such weight that they don't even use her name. They use the wife of the, you know, Uriah. Uriah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's really, uh, you know, pretty stunning. And as you're sitting here waiting for this baby called Jesus to come out the bottom shoot, um, one of the things that Ray Bakke has said beautifully is he says, this story tells you, yes, Jesus died for you with his blood. But as importantly, it describes the kind of blood that Jesus described, hmm. that Jesus died with. Yeah, that it's not a pure, you know, breed. It's yeah. not a. It's not a. You know, someone that's not been touched. I mean, this is a person that's got literally all of the blood of you know the world that we knew of at that time running through his own bloodstream. Hmm. And you know, for me, when I think about the multiculturalism, you know, of our world and the mixed, you know, families and people not sure who's my mother, who's my father, and of course you can just feel so beaten down by that. I turn to this Christmas story and I go, this is actually really good news. Yeah. 
um, that the savior of the world came out of that exact same family line that looks very much like my own family line, looks very much like the family lines of many of the families that Leadership Foundations are working with in cities around the world. So yeah. that, this first scenario, I think it just, you know, you find yourself going, really? That, that's uh, in the Bible? Right. I mean, you know. And then to me, it's just so encouraging to realize that, um, you know, redemption is literally, the, you know, uh, found in imperfection. Mm-hmm. You know, and this, the whole spirituality of imperfection, you know, and the, mm-hmm. the, the closest, you know, that all the things that, you know, wonderful things have been written, including like Richard Rohr, you know, where we fall upward, you know, mm-hmm. just that idea that, mm-hmm. you know, unless we're willing to embrace the fact that, yeah, this is messed up, mm-hmm. right? But out of that, that's the very, um, that's the very soil you know, that this shoot of yeah. Jesse, you know, springs from. Yeah. yeah. And I, you know, you as a pastor, you probably experienced this, but I, some of the saddest seasons of the time of the, of the year are in and around Christmas and some of these, you know, right. big holidays. And I oftentimes wonder, is it because, you know, not that a pastor like you would do this, Rick, but <laughs> others stand up and they hold up this idealized family and can't you wait to, you know, kind of pray together because the family that prays together stays together and then you're going to get back to your big turkey dinner and and you know there's all these people sitting out there kind of going that is nothing like my reality I mean what Mm -hmm. would happen if pastors stood up and said you know I'm going to tell you about a family that you know it's probably a bit more like yours might it not you know in some ways almost ironically encourage people as opposed to getting so sad well I think that's why in some cases um uh, you know, uh, I would call it popular. Maybe it's more Western in its, you know, uh, uh, approach, but that some of the media that, you know, like the movies and the television shows, like they, they this new uh, show, This Is Us, mm-hmm. that's just all the rage now, you know, mm-hmm. which, of course, I I need to watch only for the people in my house to stay current, <laughs> you know. But, <laughs> but yeah, they just did kind of a finale just this week, mm-hmm. and, and it was this gathering, you know, sort of a holiday gathering, but each person that was there uh was uh, had some s- serious issues mm. you know and they were honest about that mm-hmm. in in the telling of this story mm-hmm. and i think that's why people are drawn to that because it's so it, it so legitimizes you know what real life is and then you look at the scriptures and and uh you know it, there it is reflected yeah. right in the in the in the actual scripture yeah. yeah but i think it is easy i think in um you know in some <clears throat> cases to just say hey let's uh Let's let's put a bathrobe on everybody and do a nativity scene, and then you know, mm-hmm. like uh, you know, and and uh, mm-hmm. I think that is, uh, in a sense, uh, um, off-putting, you know, because because you know we can see through that, mm-hmm. and that's what's so amazing I think about leadership foundations around the world is that they're um, not not unwilling to be realistic about what's happening, but but also realize that this is the very kind of circumstance that redemption, you know, emerges from. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, I, I I totally agree. I mean, I uh, you know Ralph Waldo Emerson made this statement. He was actually meant to critique uh, Christianity, but where he said everything that God makes has a crack in it. Now his argument, of course, was that if God was God, then it certainly couldn't have a crack in it because that would question whether or not God was omnipotent and right. all that. But then it was, you know, later on, um, you know, picked up by uh, the songwriter who just passed away here uh, that wrote Hallelujah and all that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
I'll think of it in a second. Yep. And uh, his he picked up that that line. Yeah. But then he added because that's the only way the light gets through, and it was a wonderful mm -hmm. way of being able to you know in effect I think acknowledge yeah there's there's cracks in yeah. our lives in the world in the playgrounds we work in, and as opposed to saying and because of that we're going to dismiss it or illegitimize it. It's actually the place where the light gets in, mm -hmm. and uh, so. And I think even in, I, I, my experience has been even in um, friendships or relationships that when somebody finally sort of admits, um, you know, a flaw or a crack, you know, and they say, "Hey, this is this is what I'm dealing with." We we tend to think that everybody else is going to go, "Wow, nice to know you, but I, you mm -hmm. know, see you later." And instead, the exact opposite happens. It draws people in. They're like, "You know what? Me too." Mm -hmm. You know, and there, that's where intimacy is found. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's something about that, you know, that in leadership foundations, you know, their willingness to uh, be honest about what's happening in a particular city, it, it's a, it's cohesive, mm -hmm. you know, even though you think, well, let's just, let's just keep the story, yeah. you know, uh, uh, you know, on the, on the upside. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I think that's, uh, I think that's part of what this, the Christmas story, the untold Christmas yeah. story invites us to. By the way, I just remember the name. It's Leonard Cohen. Yes, it is. <laughs> I knew we were... A little bit of trivia. <laughs> that was good. I neither, knew... neither one of you were, were listening to each other for the last 30 seconds. <laughs> Nor anybody listening to this podcast. Everybody was thinking... <laughs> who who yeah. is that? Or we, they were saying, of course it's Leonard Cohen. We probably got a, an email during that, that space <laughs> there from like my mom, who's the only one who listens to the podcast on my side. But... <laughs> What number? What about scenario number two? Yeah, there? yeah. So the second one that kind of surfaces is now, and actually, it's two things that come out of this. Is of course Jesus is born, and um, two things are notable about this birth is, and you almost miss it, you know, if if you don't think about it for a minute. But he was uh, born an Asian baby, mm -hmm. right? That uh, that Israel at that time was was in the you know, kind of province of, of Asia. Mm -hmm. um, and um, just a little bit later, he became, of course, because of this character by the name of Herod, um, you know, a um, refugee. Yeah. And you take a half a step back, Rick, and you, again, just begin to think about the relevance um, of, of the gospel because, you know, over, you know, and this would be a bit of a guess, but I think pretty conservatively, over 50% of the babies, you know, born in the world today are Asian. And you just, again, pause and think about here 2,000 years ago, mm -hmm. the birth of Jesus as an Asian baby was in some ways almost a foretelling of where we would be here in the 21st century. And as notably, um, he became immediately then a refugee. Mm -hmm. um, and when you think about the refugee crisis um, in the world today that yeah. you know, probably Pope Francis more than anybody has you know, brought it you know, to become visible and made note about it. Um, again, the idea of the relevance of Jesus' birth is that he immediately uh, identifies in this birth with our current reality. Mm -hmm. And that's those are I mean the you know the sheer amount of our population the refugee crisis uh, those are sharp edges at times and we're not yeah. quite sure what to do with it or you know what are the solutions right. or but the notion at least for me that the untold Christmas story 
says, well, whatever you do with it, know that you have to identify it. You have to tether it to the Savior of the world. I think, again, is, is pretty breathtaking. Yeah, it is. And I, I think also the uh, for those of us in the West, um, you know, that the, the, the Christmas story almost gets told as if it were a Southern Californian event. You know what I mean? <laughs> it, it's, you know, we've kind of remade it in our image. And, yeah. and certainly when we think about the fact that it's not only an Eastern event, but even the, the earliest, um, I was just reading about the, the wise men, you know, and mm-hmm. how um, the influence, there, there's some conjecture as to where they were from, you know, uh, and mm-hmm. at what point, you know, whether Persia or, you know, modern day, um, Iraq or wherever they came from. Mm-hmm. But then they were saying that the part of the evidence for their visit being from that part of the world was that they're the earliest expressions of Christianity are the Coptic expressions and the, and so the global South yeah, right. is the, were the original followers. That's right. And, and, you know, we don't, uh, we don't like to consider that. Like, let's not have Jesus be an Asian baby and let's not let the global South have a voice in this thing, you know, and yet that's the reality. Yeah. So I think that's beautiful relative to, you know, the work in the city. Yeah. Because I mean, you know, there is some, uh, you know, there is, there's a glimpse of, of, um, of evidence that, you know, a small percentage of privileged folks get to tell most of the stories. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, in so many ways, I, I think of a story, and this is a church that both you and I know, but it will remain nameless. But I was speaking at their chapel, and they asked me to do something about the city, and I was talking about, you know, how we've got to be really careful uh, that we don't make all these idols. Of, of who we really think, you know, God ultimately is. And mm-hmm. so in the Q&A, at some point, someone took objection to that and said, well, I don't think, you know, we're making idols. And, well, there's a stained glass window sitting right behind the guy. And here is, of course, this picture of the little baby in the, you know, crib and the whole bit with bright blue eyes. <laughs> and you just kind of go, you know, behold. Um, and of not trying in any way to, to denigrate the guy, but to say, you know, we make gods uh, in our image yeah. all the time, yeah. and and so I think again, the recovery of this of this untold Christmas story is that uh, this this Savior uh, not only comes from these women um, that we don't actually like to talk much about, but you know, it's it's tough to talk about the refugee mm-hmm. crisis without you know immediately kind of clinching up a little bit or yeah talking about you know just the the sheer amount of of people being born in cities and population overload and what to do and and what I know it's done for me at least uh, in many dinner tables is said well I'm not quite sure what the solution always is Um, I'm not quite sure what the strategy might be moving forward but what it does allow me to do is just acknowledge the fact that this is, yeah. um, and, and this is a part of these cities. This is a part of the playground, and whatever else God's going to do, um, God has already done probably the biggest thing, and that's identify with it in terms of uh, his own person. Yeah, so. wow. You know, I had a chance to meet Andrew White, who's the vicar of Baghdad, and he works with uh, refugee families, especially in that, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. right now in that part of the world. And uh, one of the questions somebody asked him when we were getting together was kind of a kind of a cool opportunity to meet him in a smaller group. Somebody said, "How can you uh, possibly have 
you know, people that follow Jesus in this, you know, terrible setting, you know, as refugees, as, you know, in a, you know, pretty hostile environment. And he said, well, if, if he weren't a suffering servant, mm-hmm. we wouldn't, you know, be following him. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. he was a refugee, right? You know, he understands what it's like to say, Hey, um, the present ruler, you know, <laughs> is a maniac, mm-hmm. you know, and we're, we're, we have to run for our lives. Mm-hmm. And he said, it's a, it's a, the very, um, sort of story, the untold story that is so, um, causes uh, the folks there to realize that we have a savior that, that is moved, you know, by our circumstance. Yep. And yep. so, yeah, it's, yeah. it's so true. Yeah. I, I, you know, you know this about me and I think, uh, a number of our listeners do, but about 11 years ago now, I um, decided to cross the Tiber and, and join the, the Catholic Church. And, you know, with my history and young life and leadership foundations that was more decidedly evangelical, uh, you know, suffice it to say, a couple questions have been raised about how could I do such a thing? <laughs> yeah. Whatever happened today? <laughs> That's right. We knew he was an, <laughs> and... Uh, so it's forced me in some ways, of course, would be probably too strong a word, but it's allowed me uh, or given me a platform just to talk a bit about, well, what was it, you know, in, yeah. the, in the church that kind of drew me? One of the things, um, one of the very top things, um, particularly given all my work in the city, is the fact that the Catholic Church holds on uh, to the crucifix. Um, and again, this might seem so subtle, mm-hmm. but you know, in a Catholic church, you, you come into the you know to the church, you'll of course see the cross with Jesus on it, mm-hmm. um, right? Still suffering. In my Protestant background, of course, that cross is empty, uh, and again, for good theological reason, right? Right. I mean, Jesus is right. Hey, the first day of the week, early in the morning, Dave. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Well, you, you think about just the implications in some ways, Rick, of this in terms of what and how we engage the world. I mean, do you engage the world? And again, I, I want to be careful here to say it's not that the Catholic Church has this right, the Protestant right. Church has it wrong. Right. But for me, to be able to every week at Mass, um, in some ways be forced, uh, but more often than not be allowed to have as my primary object of my gaze to be the crucified one, uh, has been hugely helpful for mm-hmm. me in terms of the kind of work I do. Right. Um, it, 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 it immediately, you know, invites, maybe pushes, nudges me back into the suffering that's going to be there. Um, yeah. And I, you know, tell people all the time, I desperately do believe in the resurrection. I do believe <laughs> <laughs> that whole Easter story. But I think that Easter story has got to be, uh, you know, combined. Uh, oh, with, yeah. With well, plus, the, you know, you and I are right now, we're living on the crucifix side of things. I mean, yeah, the resurrection is a ho- our great hope, mm-hmm. but it's not our, our daily experience. Mm-hmm. Now, I got to tell you that, you know, uh, because I know that, you know, about you, um, we had a really cool uh, experience in that we come from one of those, you know, empty cross you know, churches, mm-hmm. you know, but when we had a little prayer day, we called, uh, St. Leo's in mm-hmm. Tacoma and, uh, you know, and we were so, uh, I mean, just, it was a gift for them to allow us to come. And so they locked us into the, into the, <laughs> into the building. And, uh, we just spent the morning, you know, just having a kind of a prayer exercise. But at the mm-hmm. end of it, we received communion 
and we put our chairs right in front of the crucifix mm. up front. Mm-hmm. And it was a, mm-hmm. it was something that had always been missing for me uh, was present. Mm. And so mm-hmm. I, I get you. Mm-hmm. I really do. And I think mm-hmm. that's a, was a tremendous, uh, you know, to use a kind of Christian word, but it was a blessing mm-hmm. to us, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, I think that, you know, that's now and then there are, there have been some works of art or even some songs that begin to reflect the idea that even as a baby, uh, there was, uh, it was the beginning of the walk, you know, the difficult walk mm-hmm. that, you know, the, I think it was that old uh, Edersheim, you know, in the life and times of mm-hmm. Jesus, the Messiah, mm-hmm. that book that was like a doorstop, you know, <laughs> but he would say in that when he, mm-hmm. even when he was offered, uh, you know, as a child to be dedicated, um, you know, that the, even the, the early circumcision for a child of his gender would have been um, the drops of blood, mm-hmm. you know, to start the walk. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a, that that should not be an untold part, but for, unfortunately is. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Yeah, and that, you know, and, and it's again because there's a, there's a little bit of, at times, without this Christmas story that we're talking about, um, you know, you just get the sense that Jesus had this, you know, 33 years of just, you know, teaching and preaching and, you know, kind of mm-hmm. doing stuff, and all of a sudden this horrific thing comes out of the blue called the crucifixion, and he dies, and thank God, you know, he was raised from the dead. Well, the recovery of this story is uh, this was foreshadowed. Yeah. Uh, this this is a this is a little baby that that came into this world uh, that was full of these sharp edges, and you get the very real sense that you know it was Simeon who looks at Mary and says, "Now, you know, he's going to be the kind of pulling down and the rising up, mm-hmm. and your heart is going to be pierced." I mean, this. This, this was not a, a story that, oops, by the way, suffering happened at the end of it. I mean, right. It is really, in some ways, enveloped uh, yeah. in this. So. Yeah, for sure. And that, there was that one song, whatever, uh, however it comes across in, you know, in your memory. It, it could be you know, off the, the cheese meter chart. But you know, that Mary, <laughs> did you know that song? Mm-hmm. I can't remember who wrote it. But it, had, it does inc- you mm-hmm. know, embody that. Did, you know, do you realize that the baby that you're holding, you know? Mm-hmm. Will you know is holding this universe? Yeah, and I also um, for some of us that don't operate on a liturgical calendar, you know, we've become at least in you know in our side of the world, we're kind of the lunar calendar people, or even mm-hmm. maybe the scholastic calendar. We think eh, you know the year starts in September, the kids go to school. Right. But when you look at the liturgical calendar, you know, the Advent is the beginning of the year. That's exactly right. You know, and I think that we feel like it's the end because here we go and then the New Year's and yeah, all that. That's a good but point. But I think it's important for us to understand, mm-hmm. you know, that this is, this is the story mm-hmm. and this is how it starts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, and then, the, and then the, probably the next scenario, not necessarily the last scenario, Rick, but the one that is, you know, I mean, I'll just say up front, I do not understand it. Um, but is that essentially a whole village of baby boys, you know, were slaughtered um, before Jesus could die for them. And it's just like you don't know what else there is to say. Um, And yet, um, again, when we think about just some of the devastation that's taking place uh, in this world, uh, you know, uh, infant uh, mortality rate, you know, in a very 
just, you know, again, breathtaking sort of way, this notion um, that the, the untold Christmas story was already anticipating, um, you know, just the tragedy yeah. um, of little babies uh, dying uh, for no other reason, I should add, than just simply the um, lack of care, you know, concern, some of the horrific policies, the wars that are taking place. Um, and it was similar, right? It was, it was yeah. this tyrant called Herod who was fearful of his power, uh, was, uh, you know, hearing rumors that there was a king of Israel that was going to usurp him, and he just couldn't have it. And so he went to probably, I think, the, some of the most drastic means possible to secure his power. Well, that's getting replayed. I mean, we, we could probably talk about a number of cities right now uh, in countries torn by civil war where the, the real um, casualty are, yeah. are these, little, these little kids, these little babies. And uh, again, just heartbreaking to say you want to do something immediately, but at least for a moment in Christmas to pause and say, you know, Jesus's birth, you know, anticipated this, knew something about this. Yeah, I mean, the, the concept that um, someone would be so, uh, you know, so convinced of their, uh, you know, sort of universal power that they could just decree, mm-hmm. you know, that to preserve my position, you know, children you know all the kids under two years old in this area must die i mean just i think it's it's uh it's hard to fathom you mm-hmm. know that i mean because at least in our part of the world we're like should we run that by uh, a committee or something you know I mean, like mm-hmm. we just can't imagine this this authoritative um you know ability and that i think that speaks to uh, based on you know what i've been taught that you know that it gets to a point where you um in at this point in history where you're deified you know where you literally um, convince yourself, uh, yeah, God, I, you know, I see him in the mirror, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, in fact, there's a song written by a good friend of mine in Sacramento, and he, and he said, we put a mirror in the sky. We look up and see ourselves deified. God looks just like you and I because we put a mirror in the sky. Mm-hmm. And this is like his, you know, mm-hmm. and it was kind of a haunting song. But mm-hmm. I think that, um, that to me, that... Um, that lesson is, you know, it, you know, you could see where we'd say, let's not, let's not put that in the Hallmark version. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah and, you know, and, and what, and this is, of course is probably not the place for this, but I mean, when you, when you jump into Herod's mind, you know, and you take a look at the wider picture of, you know, a Roman occupied territory, um, I, I have no doubt that Herod, you know, knew in some ways that he was the Israelites' protection, that he mm-hmm. had secured a deal or two with Caesar. Um, so I think I, I'm, I'm certain, because I've even had this own conversation with myself about things that I justify. It's like, well, of course I have to go to these means to protect you know, my power, because it's my power that actually allows the Israelites at least you know, their relative you know, freedom. And I, I think about a number of the of the countries and cities where this this kind of tragedy is taking place. Mm-hmm. You, when you get a chance to, you know, meet these people or read about these people, you're expecting to meet someone with horns and a pitchfork and sure. a tail, but they're they're remarkably sane, and it's because I think they've had this conversation to say, look, you know, 
it, it's because I have reached these deals, these compromises that allows, you know, the kids to live. Mm -hmm. So if I have to sacrifice a few kids in order to save a whole lot more kids, at least this is the way the, the script is read. Yeah. So be it. Yeah. And I think there's something about um, a, a tyranny in me mm. that does not accommodate a savior either. You know, that I'm like, hey, I, I would, you know, rather, uh, you know, d destroy what is the most precious in order to, you know, s sort of stay the God of my little universe. And I think that it's confronting, you know, and I think the work of LF in the cities is, you know, a willingness to say, look, um, you know, uh, you know, that's not us, you know, and, and we've talked about that, you know, that there are, there have been, let, let me say, social service endeavors that feel like when they've arrived in the city, now mm -hmm. God's, you know, going to get in gear. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've always appreciated about leadership foundations is to say that, you know, God is at work, you know, in the city and we'll find our place, you know, and even the, you know, the, the better articulated, um, you know, tools of change, you know, that have mm -hmm. emerged in the last couple of years, you know, are, are about, you know, collaboration and, you know, and not, being, you know, uh, the deified source of all, you know, playground, you know, yeah. ideas. So yeah. I, I think it's a good lesson. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I think you, you beautifully described exactly what I think LF has, you know, from the beginning, this has a lot to do with Ray Bakke, you know, understood its missiology to be one of, you know, going and seeing what God is already doing. And now you're, strategic plan uh, really becomes how do we align ourselves with that over and against setting up you know some kind of, of plan that assumes that until we got there that nothing had been happening and then you kind of take it over by force yeah and it's interesting again I think I think the untold Christ, uh, Christmas story um, helps remind me and this is oftentimes what we do in leadership foundations when we're uh, beginning to create a leadership foundation in a city or trying to help you know get things going we oftentimes talk about how you are going to be effective in the city to the degree that you uh, touch the points of pain in mm -hmm. the city um, <clears throat> and again nobody naturally runs to that right unless we have something like this Christmas story that says you've already been given permission you know to do so in fact more than permission um, this is exactly where you need to go uh, in order to get in step with God's spirit yeah, well, and I think, um, you know, uh, whenever I hear somebody saying, if I were in charge, my decision would be to kill programs and to kill funding and to kill, and I always think, uh, I've read this before, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And then others who say, mm -hmm. now, no, you know, they're just our words of life that are different, and I think those are indicators of, of tyranny and and I think this story helps us discern that, mm -hmm. you know. And it's a we, we better include this in the story. Mm -hmm. But it's easy. I think uh, you know traditionally, at least in our part of the world, we like take the Christmas story and we highlight it with a black marker. You know, like no, no, just kind of just leave that out. <laughs> just kind of, <laughs> you know. Yeah, so. yeah. And it's a, and I you know to go back to the statement you made, I, I think that's very powerful. I think this story, particularly with. Uh, related to Herod, it helps us uh, discover not just the tyrant, you know, of that particular city, the bully, you know, in the playground, right. 
but the truth be told that there's one in me as well yeah and how do i get honest about that um knowing that there is a sort of proclivity in me to uh just want to do it my way and uh i mean i i I oftentimes think about someone like herod in light of what thomas aquinas said uh so many years ago he of course is wrestling with all these big philosophical issues but one of his statements was all evil is a confusion of ends and means hmm. and i <laughs> i thought have thought about that for a long time because you know i wish evil was what i was kind of told when i was little that it looks like this and tastes like this and you know smells like this and you just know to stay away from it and then you know good is always but of course, it's much more gray than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think of how often I have made the mistake of really beginning to, you know, take the end, you know, that I was intended to help impact, and I begin to substitute that with the means, which sure. is the thing that actually gets funded. It's the thing right. that the board of directors actually gets excited about. And the temptation, before I know it, I think to do exactly what Herod does as all tyrants do is that we begin to confuse the end and the means yeah oof well and i mean that uh, another way to say that in my mind is just when i start to value something instrumentally in other words the the reason i think this is important is because you know what for what i can trade it for Mm -hmm. you know and i mean i know my dad used to always he used to i'd be going on a big date you know back in the day and he'd he'd have a 20 dollar bill uh and he wanted to give me the 20, but it was more like, um, the speech came with the gift, you know, <laughs> so he would have a speech for me, right, but, right. but he'd tell me, you know, would you like this? And I'd say, yeah, sure. Well, he'd say, but I don't think you really want this. I think you want what you can get with this. Mm-hmm. And there's a, he was always trying to reinforce the, the idea that, um, you know, there are a lot of things that are instruments, but when we start to think instrumentally, you know, instead of understanding the inherent value of something and man, I mean, that's, that's something that I think Mm -hmm. is, it's confronting, Mm -hmm. you know, it is. Yeah. You know, the, the last little scenario, Rick, I know our time's getting short and I didn't, um, I wasn't thinking about saying this, but there's a particular character, uh, in the scripture that only shows up in the Christmas stories, essentially. And that's Joseph. Mm -hmm. And Joseph fascinates me uh, for a number of reasons. Um, going back to that moment when all of a sudden Mary, you know, um, who he's betrothed to, tells him, oh, by the way, I'm with child. Right. Um, he, being an honorable man, decides to divorce her quietly. Um, and, of course, then is visited by an angel, and the angel says, nope, this, this one's on the Almighty, and so mm-hmm. stay with. And, you know, all these things, you know, begin to happen. He never speaks, right? I mean, I mean, here's this hugely prominent person that in some ways the untold Christmas story hinges on. Yeah. Um, if, if it wasn't for him, uh, there would have been, you know, a divorce for sure. Uh, if it wasn't for him, they probably would not have been able to be- navigate to Africa and back, you know. If it wasn't for him, again, maybe Jesus becomes, you know, one of those that was slaughtered. Um, But he does all these noble things. Uh, In the midst of a season when everybody is singing out loud and talking out loud and noise seems to be the 
the currency of the day, and he never speaks. Hmm. And I've just I've wondered if at times, uh, and again, I think for leadership foundations, increasingly what we're beginning to discover as we do our work of making cities playgrounds rather than battlegrounds, it's going to have a whole lot less to do with what you say. Mm-hmm. And it's not, again, to argue against the sermons or the... right. Bible studies or the treaty on you know the social realities of, of you know, life, but but how do we begin to incorporate this in a way that says you know be quieter, um, mm-hmm. take the volume down just a bit, and might you be able to see the uh, the true Christmas story in clearer and crisper ways? Yeah, that's good. That's really good. I think um, you know in, when we think traditional Christmas is. Uh, uh, I don't know how it made it into the, you know, the canon of classic songs, but you know, um, if you think about Silent Night in those terms, mm-hmm. that's a better song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that might be Joseph's song. It's Joseph's song. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's great. Well, it's it's a. Uh, I'm having a better holiday as a result. And if someone were on a 48 minute commute, they have just arrived. This would be perfect. Yeah, it'd be yeah. perfect for them. So, thanks for. Uh, <laughs> For the insight and uh, and again uh, uh, for the chance to to record these thoughts and, and share them. Yep. Thank you, Rick. And if you have any uh, anything to add, including perhaps uh, more information on Leonard Cohen, you know, since we, <laughs> we need to make him more memorable, you can always email us at uh, leadershipfoundations.org, and you can also uh, tell your friends to uh, subscribe to our podcast. But thanks again. Talk All to right. you next time, Dave. Merry Christmas. <laughs>